0: Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we are in James chapter 3 today, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to open them up to the third chapter of this epistle. And we come to what is perhaps the second most familiar section of James. The first um, most well-known section of James would of course have been the section that we looked at last week dealing with the relationship between faith and works. But if there is another section that people are aware of from this relatively little-known epistle, it would certainly be this section which deals with our tongues. So... My job today is to make you feel as uncomfortable as possible. But let's go ahead and read through the first 12 verses of James chapter 3. The Apostle writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In 1939, two German physicists, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann, made a world famous discovery. And what they discovered was the way to split the atom nuclear fission. Now, from the earliest days, back in fact at the time of the Greeks, people knew that all matter, all material is composed of tiny little particles, which the Greeks referred to as atoms. Now, they didn't know much about atoms, but they knew enough to know that all matter is made of these little particles. Now, as time went by and science developed and grew, scientists came to the understanding that those tiny little particles, those atoms, actually contain an enormous amount of energy. And if it was possible in some way to split those atoms, then that power that energy would be released. Now, I don't think anybody really knew just how much energy the atom had, but they discovered in 1939 the tremendous potential when the atom was finally split. Potential for both good and potential for great evil. You can't even see an atom. It's that small, and yet it has as I said, great potential. Think about the potential good that nuclear science has produced in the world today. It's because of nuclear fission, nuclear energy, that we can light entire cities, entire cities, much more effectively than by using coal or fossil fuels. Nuclear energy powers ships, huge ships, enormous ships like Aircraft carriers. I know many of you have seen the aircraft carrier that's moored right over there across the river, the USS Yorktown. You know, aircraft carriers today are three and four times the size of the Yorktown, what it was in World War II. And many of these aircraft carriers are powered. These enormous ships, floating cities, some of them having almost 100,000 people on board, fueled by nuclear power. We have nuclear-powered submarines as well. And one of the wonderful things about nuclear energy is that it is clean. Much cleaner than other forms of energy we have used in the past. For example, like coal. So, nuclear energy, the result of splitting the atom, tremendous good for humanity. Tremendous potential for good things. But we also know, don't we, that the atom and the power that it unleashed when it was split can also be used for tremendous evil. I think I pointed out to you a few weeks ago that I was in Washington, D.C., and while I was waiting at a layover for Dulles uh, Dulles Airport, I went to the um, Smithsonian. They have a whole um, part of the Smithsonian up there, a whole satellite of the Smithsonian, the Air and Space Museum there. And they have it there because there are hangars there, and you can put these huge aircrafts. You can actually see the Discovery, um, the space shuttle. And you could see all sorts of things, space capsules and so forth, but the thing that really captured my attention was the Enola Gay. It made my hair stand on, and to stand there and look into the cockpit of that plane that dropped the first atomic bomb, and the devastation that that atomic bomb wrought, and how it ushered in an entirely new stage in the history of mankind and the history of the world, That's what the atom has the potential to do. Potential for tremendous good, but potential for tremendous evil. Well, if you think about it, that's a good illustration of exactly what James is talking about here in chapter 3 of his letter when he talks about the tongue. He said the tongue is the smallest member of the body, or one of the smallest members of the body, and it has tremendous potential. It has tremendous potential for good and it has tremendous potential for evil. And the reason for that is because words matter. They really do. We've all been taught that sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. Well, how many of you actually believe that to be true? It's been my experience that sometimes words are far more painful than any amount of physical harm that can be inflicted on you. And sometimes the wounds last a whole lot longer, sometimes years, sometimes a lifetime. The words that are said in haste or carelessly spoken. Just think about the difference words can make. Think about this man, Winston Churchill. That was a man who was a master of the English language. And by his words, he galvanized an entire nation. He helped them rise to the occasion to fight off fascism in the 1940s. It was due in large measure to the words of Winston Churchill that England was able to hold on as the last holdout against the Nazi regime and the Axis powers. But while words can be used for great good, just think, just across the English Channel in Europe, of the other man who used his words I think sometimes when you see pictures of Adolf Hitler and you listen to his speeches, if you don't understand German, it seems like he was just a wild man. But he was a very eloquent individual. He had this ability to just captivate audiences, inspire them. When I was growing up, we had a man that lived in my neighborhood. His name was Mr. Pulaski. He had been a state trooper. And actually, his family had lived at one point in Germany. And he told a story. I've never forgotten it. He was at a neighbor's house at a fire and we were sitting around the fire and he tells this story about his father had lived in Germany when the war began and his father had been opposed to the Nazi regime, just absolutely opposed to the Nazis, hated everything about them and a friend invited him to go and listen to Hitler speak and he wanted to do it. But eventually he decided to go with his friend because he was under pressure to do so and he went and he said by the end... Of that rally, he was standing there and saluting and cheering with all the rest, just absolutely captivated, carried along by the rhetoric of that man. Just goes to show you the power of words and what words have the ability to do. Words that can be used for great good, words that can be used for great evil. Words that can be used to build up and words that can be used to tear down. Let me tell you, a father's harsh word to his son can be absolutely devastating beyond imagination. It can wound that child for years, decades to come. It can have a trickle down effect into his own relationship with his own children. A critical word from a spouse can make a marriage an absolute misery. And this is a two-way street, by the way. It's just a great picture. I couldn't help but put it up there on the screen. But this is a two-way street. It goes both ways, doesn't it? A critical husband, a nagging wife. That sort of thing can absolutely ruin a relationship. That's what words have the power to do, and that's what James is talking about. Of all the members of the body, he said, it is the tongue more than any other. More than your hands, more than your feet, more than your eyes, more than anything else, it is the tongue that has the potential to do great good, but it also has the potential for great evil. And he concentrates primarily on the evil here, the destructive power of the tongue. Why? Because more often than not, he says, that's how we use our tongues. Not to build up, but to tear down. Not for constructive purposes, but for destructive purposes. Now, James was the brother of our Lord. And you know that Jesus was wonderful at using illustrations. Illustrations are like windows. The purpose of a window is to let the light in. That's what an illustration is really meant to do. An illustration is to let the light in. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And that's why Jesus used wonderful pictures to describe great themes. For instance, he talked about camels creeping through the eyes of a needle. That's a wonderful illustration, isn't it? Well, James must have heard Jesus do this on any number of occasions, and he decided to use illustrations as well. And he uses a number of them here to describe the power of the tongue. Some of them are positive illustrations, some of them are negative illustrations, but they make the point all the more powerful. So, for example, he talks about... A horse's bit. Look at what he says, beginning at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. For if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now remember, in James's day, a horse was a very important animal. Horses were used for all sorts of things to transport people, to transport goods. They didn't have automobiles in those days. They didn't have trains. They didn't have planes. They didn't have ships the way we have ships today. They did have ships, but traveling by sea was a very dangerous prospect. So much of what was transported was transported by horsepower. Horses are powerful creatures. If you've ever been on a horse, you know how powerful they are. That's a a daunting thing to straddle 1,000 pounds of horse flesh. And yet, even though the horse is an enormous and powerful animal with a little bit placed in its mouth, you can control the entire creature. But if you don't control the entire creature, that horse can be a very dangerous thing. I can't help but think of the late Christopher Reeves, who played Superman. He was an accomplished horseman, but he had a horseback riding accident and ended up crippled for life, paralyzed from the neck down. Well, James says the tongue is like that. It is a very powerful thing, but if you don't control it, it can be a very dangerous thing. He uses the illustration of a ship's rudder in verse 4. He says, look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Those of you who operate boats or you're on sailboats and so forth, you know this is true. That rudder can actually direct the ship. It's an amazing thing. These aircraft carriers that I mentioned before, they have a relatively small rudder in comparison to the rest of the craft, and yet with that one small rudder, you can direct the entire ship anywhere you want it to go. But what happens if the rudder breaks or ceases to function? The ship may go somewhere, but it's not going to go where you want it to go. James said the same thing is true of the tongue. So he said we need to control our tongues if we want them to do positive as opposed to negative things. Now, now he goes on to use a number of other illustrations, and these are the most graphic, of course. Those are positive illustrations, a horse's bit, a ship's rudder, but now he uses a number of negative illustrations. He says... But it's not just that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It's not like it's the bit in a horse's mouth. He said, the tongue, more often than not, is like a blaze. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. first illustration he uses there is that of a blazing fire. He said how a great fire can start from a small spark. We're seeing this with all of the fires that are taking place out west. It reminds me of the great Chicago fire. On October 8, 1871, one of the worst domestic fires in this nation's history took out. Urban fires took, took flame. And it happened from a small spark. If you know the history of the Chicago Fire, it's really, this is legendary, but many people believe that it's true. It's believed that it happened, it started from a small spark in a barn. Mrs. O'Leary's barn Apparently what happened was a cow accidentally kicked over a lantern. This is the 19th century of course, using lanterns. Kicked over a lantern. It set the hay ablaze. Next thing you know, the barn was ablaze. And by the end of the day and the next, that day and the next, the city of Chicago was practically destroyed. And Chicago, in the latter part of the 19th century, was the up-and-coming city. It was the great city of the West. By the end of the day, 17,000 buildings have been destroyed, 300 people were dead, and 125,000 people were homeless. Because one cow in one barn accidentally kicked over one lantern. James says that's what the tongue has the potential to do. One careless word, one snide comment, one little bit of being added to the rumor mill. And before you know it, it's out of control. It's like a raging fire. It's devastating things. It's destroying people's lives. He describes the ability of the tongue to stain. To stain. He said, the tongue is set among our members. It stains the whole body. We are getting ready to have a wedding in our family. My second son is going to be married on November 13th. And just a few days ago, I got a picture from the bride-to-be of her wedding dress. And it is amazing. It is beautiful. My son's a Marine officer. I think he's just going to fall apart, Marine or not, when he sees her come down the aisle, dressed like that, just absolutely magnificent. This beautiful white dress. I'm always astonished at how much brides will pay for a dress that they'll wear one time. But that dress is precious, isn't it? It's the one thing that they go out and they look for. And they take time to make sure that it's just right. Can you imagine if a bride is getting ready in the parlor of the church and somebody's in there drinking coffee and carelessly slips and pours that coffee accidentally on that wedding dress? What would it do? It would be the end of the world. It would ruin everything, wouldn't it? It wouldn't matter how beautiful the flowers were. It would not matter how wonderful the music is. It would not matter how eloquent the preacher is. And it would not matter how handsome the groom was. The only thing that bride would be thinking about is the stain. The stain has the potential to do what? Ruin everything. And James says that is what the tongue does. By its carelessness, it stains things. It ruins everything. Utterly and completely. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the words that you speak, the things that you say, the comments that you make, the careless comments, the thoughtless comments, and how they have the potential to stain and to ruin not only our lives, but the lives of others. James uses the illustration of a wild animal. I like this one in particular. He says, every manner of animal has been tamed. Every beast of the ber- beast and bird, every reptile, every sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. It's been years now, but when our children were little, we took them to SeaWorld. And I was absolutely astonished that they could train a killer whale. That's extraordinary if you think about it. Train a killer whale to perform tricks. You can tame a creature like that. And yet James says we cannot tame the tongue. What happens if you have a wild or a feral animal in your neighborhood? What do you do? You call animal control, don't you? And they come out and they take care of the problem, don't they? If it's a raccoon, they take care of the raccoon. If it's a possum, they take care of the of the possum. If it's a bat, depending upon the time of the year, they'll take care of the bats. We can control all sorts of things. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was an agency out there that could corral our words? Because once they're out, they're impossible to control. That's the point that James is making. And these are the illustrations he's using He's saying the tongue has the potential for great good, yes, but more often than not, it has the potential for great evil. It's like a blazing fire. It's like a stain that ruins everything. It's like a wild animal that goes out and devours and destroys. Here's the last illustration that he uses. He said the tongue is like a deadly poison, it's not just destructive, it's fatal. It has the potential to kill, if not physically, although sometimes, if not physically, at least spiritually. A deadly poison. And it does it sometimes in ways that we don't even realize. Napoleon Bonaparte was eventually exiled, as you know. Yeah, He's not very handsome at that point. This is toward the end of his life. You know, we all go to seed, so, you know, don't pick on Napoleon. But that's Napoleon Bonaparte, the master of Europe at one point. As you know, he was defeated and he was eventually exiled. And he died. And when he died in exile, there was a great debate as to what happened to Napoleon. And this debate has raged for decades since his death in the 19th century. And what we do know is that when they did an autopsy of him, they found that his body contained large amounts of arsenic. And so there was the thought that Napoleon Bonaparte was probably poisoned when he was in exile. Some say that he was uh, poisoned by those who were his closest confidants. Others suggested that it was the British who wanted to get rid of him. But the reality was that he died and he had large amounts of arsenic in his body. And that was the assumption, that he had been poisoned all those years ago. But a few years ago, there was a new scientific discovery that was made that suggests that perhaps the poisoner was far more subtle than anybody thought. In the 19th century, there were wallpapers contained, because of the coloring in them, large amounts of arsenic. Now, the arsenic is dormant, except when it's in a gaseous form. And if you're in a very moist humid environment, the arsenic can be released, apparently. And now, many scientists believe that what killed Napoleon Bonaparte was arsenic, but it wasn't somebody that was putting it into his food or into his drink. He was in a humid environment, exiled on an island, and the wallpaper killed the man that nobody else could ever get their hands on. James says that's what the tongue has the ability to do. It's very subtle. You don't necessarily see it. It's like an odorless gas, but it nevertheless is just as effective, just as deadly. So the tongue like a blazing fire. It's like a stain. It's like a wild animal. It's like a deadly poison. How does the tongue actually do this? How does the tongue actually... Exercise its destructive powers. Well, let me suggest to you a number of things. First of all, it does it by gossip. And you know how gossip works. It can be very, very subtle the way gossip works. Did you hear? Just those few words. Did you hear? No. What? Well. And we go on from there, don't we? Or the one that I like as Christians. I'm only telling you this so that you can pray. Isn't that the way we do it often? Those little phrases, did you hear, did you know, I'm only telling you this. Or I'm only telling you, don't you tell anyone else. And before you know it, it's like that little spark that has started a great blaze that destroys a family. Have you heard? Did you know? I'm only telling you this so that you can pray. This is what we call character assassination. You can run someone down. You can call their reputation into question. And let me tell you something, that is just as deadly as somebody pulling out a knife or pulling out a gun. It destroys their character, it destroys their reputation can destroy their life and the life of their family. That's what gossip does. I always tell people, you cannot talk about another person behind their back. As Christians, you can pray behind their back, but you can't talk behind their back. It happens by innuendo. Just implying something. It happens by flattery which is the opposite of gossip. It happens by criticism, which we say is really meant to build up, but we really don't intend to build up. We really intend to tear down. Innuendo. Now, James is so intent on the tongue. He talks about the tongue here. And it's interesting that this whole conversation about the tongue follows immediately after he's been dealing with the whole relationship between faith and works. James wants us to have a faith, we said, that works. It has to be a living faith. He wants us to understand that our faith just can't be intellectual assent. It just can't be lip service. It has to be something that is real and active in the world. That's what living faith is all about. That's what Christian faith is all about. Well, it's no mistake that that discussion about faith and works and a living faith, a faith that works, is immediately followed because remember, James is very practical. He's not like the Apostle Paul. After that discussion about faith and works, when we're all feeling so convicted, we would much rather turn to Paul, to Romans, and talk about justification or sanctification or something like that that's high and ethereal. But James takes us right down to the practical level, where we live. And the way we conduct ourselves in the use of our tongue. James will tell you in no uncertain terms that the tongue of all the members of the body has the most potential for good, the most potential for evil. It also is the best indicator of your spiritual life. If you want to know whether or not you're walking with the Lord, the best indicator of your spiritual life, chances are it's going to be your tongue. What you say, the words that you speak, That's the best indicator. This is the one that I always struggle with. It's road rage. I'm so delighted that I walk home from church every Sunday. (laughs) Because how easy it is to be in church on our knees, singing the Lord's praises, and then to come out of church, get in your car, you're on your way to brunch, and you get stuck behind a carriage. And all of the things you want to say, or that person who, when you turn on your turn signal, takes that as a declaration of war and speeds up so that you can't get out into the lane. And you've just said, bless the Lord, oh my soul. At which point you proceed to bless that fellow out that just cut you off. Isn't that the way it works? How many of you have ever had that experience? It's one of the reasons why, if I'm traveling on a long-distance trip, I never wear my collar. (laughs) Because I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I remember being in Washington, D.C. on one occasion. I was in seminary at the time, but seminaries were required to wear collars to our fieldwork parishes. And I was wearing my collar. And I was riding with a friend, and somebody cut us off and honked the horn at us, and when he honked the horn at us, he gave us the universal sign of peace, (laughs) at which point he got a good look at me in my collar, and I simply went, bless you, my child, (laughs) and he just about crumpled down in the seat. He was so horrified by what he had just seen. But you know how this works. You see how this works? It's in the everyday things. It's not in the big things that we fail, folks. It's oftentimes in the little things. Never put a bumper sticker on your car that says, Jesus is my co-pilot if you're going to go out and have road rage. <laughs> so James is telling us that the tongue is the best indicator of your spiritual well-being, of where you are in terms of your relationship With the Lord. You really want to know if you're growing in grace, if you're producing that fruit of the Spirit that we talked about last week love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Then ask yourself how is my tongue working? What are the words that I'm saying to my spouse, to those closest to me, to my children, to my grandchildren, to my acquaintances? to that man who just cut me off on the highway. James is very clear. That is the best indicator of your spiritual health. Now, what if you take a look at your life and you discover that your tongue is not everything that it should be? That like an atomic bomb, it is going off and causing devastation everywhere. What do you do about this? How do you curb the power of the tongue? James makes it very clear here We've been able to tame every single animal imaginable, but we cannot seem to control our own tongues. What do you do about that? Well, of course, as with all things, there is nothing that you and I, in and of our own strength, or our own power, can do. We have to rely wholly and completely on God. He alone has the power to tame you, to tame your restless spirit, and to tame your destructive mouth. So there are a number of things that we need to do. First of all, we need to acknowledge that we have a problem. We do that every time we confess our sins. We say we acknowledge and we bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Both of those things are absolutely essential. You have to acknowledge and you have to bewail. It's one thing to admit you have a problem. It's another thing to be sorry for it. But for some people, they don't want to even admit that they have a problem. It's like somebody who's dealing with an addiction. They say one of the first signs that you have a problem is denial. And if you think about it, when somebody accuses us of something, what's the first thing that we want to do? Make a defense, don't we? We want to somehow justify ourselves in the eye of the other person. When somebody accuses us of something, very rarely do we ever say, you know, you're right. First thing we say is, well, Yes, but. And we want to excuse our behavior. If you're ever going to control your tongue, you have to acknowledge first and foremost that you have a problem. And there's not a person sitting in this room today who does not have a problem with the tongue, including the man who's speaking to you. So the first thing you have to do is acknowledge I've got a problem. Second thing is this. You have to recognize that you are a new creation. That if you are in Christ Jesus, you are not the man, you are not the woman you used to be. You are something new. And that means that there is one who dwells within you. His name is the Holy Spirit and He has the power to renovate your life, to transform you from the inside out. You know, that's what... God the Holy Spirit does. He comes in and He begins to remake us. For those of you who've renovated an old house, you know how this works. Renovating an old house is an ongoing process, isn't it? How many of you live in old houses and you know this to be true? The work is never done, is it? It's never done, it's costly. That's what God the Holy Spirit does. He comes into our lives and He begins to renovate us room by room, chamber by chamber, and it is a long, lifelong process. But He alone has the power to do it. Because He is the Lord and the giver of life. And here's the third thing that you can do, practically speaking: you can spend time in God's Word. You could spend time in God's Word. Acknowledge that you have a problem, rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, and spend time in God's Word. Why is it important to spend time in God's Word? Because the more time you spend with God, the more like Him you will become. I think most of you know I'm from Pennsylvania. About uh, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, we were vacationing in Rhode Island. We were in Newport, Rhode Island. And we're sitting down in a restaurant, and we're ordering lunch. And this waitress comes and takes our order, and then she stops, and she says to me, where are you from? And I said, well, we're from South Carolina. She said, I thought so. And I said, well, why did you think so? She said, because of your accent. (laughs) I thought, my accent? You ought to hear my wife. But apparently I had lived in the South long enough that I had managed to pick up a few phrases or I had managed to pronounce some words in a certain way that you probably wouldn't recognize them as Southern, but somebody in Rhode Island did. I'd been here long enough that I began to adapt my manner of speech, my talk to the culture around me. If you spend time with God, you're going to begin to do the same thing. The more time you spend with Him in His Word, listening to Him speak, the more you will begin to adapt His manner of talking. It's the most practical thing you can do. Spend time in God's Word. And that's something that has to be done on a daily basis. Because the older you get, you should begin to look more Christ like. We we talked about this last week. We said that if you want evidence that you are walking with the Lord, that you're in a right relationship with God, what you want to see is the fruit of the Spirit. And we said the fruit of the Spirit is not individual things. It's not as though you get love, somebody else gets joy, somebody else gets peace, somebody else gets patience. We said it is like a clump of grapes. It's the whole package. And we said there was only one person in all of history who ever characterized all of those traits at one moment, and that was Jesus. And we said that's what it means to grow in grace. It means to be Christ-like. Well, Jesus was very careful in the use of his tongue, in the things that he said, in the words that he spoke. And if you want to be like him, if you want to acquire his accent, you need to spend quality time with him. And that means on a daily basis. You'll never learn to talk like God if you only meet up with him once a week for an hour and 15 minutes. So ask yourself, how's my tongue? How's my mouth? James is very clear the way he brings this to a conclusion. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He said, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In other words, cursing and blessing should not be coming forth from the same mouth. It's interesting that he uses that illustration of a spring. The water comes down from within. And that's why James goes on in the next chapter, to talk about what the real problem is. And the problem is not an external problem. He's very clear the problem is an internal problem. So let's just go ahead and read the end of the chapter and into the fourth chapter here. Because this whole discussion about the tongue flows right in to what he's talking about, and that is the heart. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. When all is said and done, James says, the tongue is simply the symptom. Now, we can do tremendous damage. But what comes out of our mouth is actually coming from within, much deeper within. That's why that image of the spring is so important. It's not the opening. It's the depth. James says the problem is not just with our mouth. It's much further down. I love the way he begins this fourth chapter. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a rhetorical question. What causes all of the destructive power of the tongue? What causes all of the sinful behavior in our lives? Who is to blame for this is what James is asking. You know, we love to blame people, don't we? This is as old as mankind. Keep your finger there in James for just a minute and turn back to the very first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. Now this is a very familiar section of the Bible. It's the story of the fall. And just listen to the narrative. Chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's the first thing. Did God actually say that? What does the serpent do? He plants the seed of doubt. I want you to understand something about Satan. Satan doesn't make anybody do anything. Regardless of what Flip Wilson once said. (laughs) The devil doesn't make us do anything. What the devil does do is he tempts us. He plants that seed of doubt What does he say to the woman? He said, did you really hear God correctly? Did God really say, you shall not eat of the tree? Now, what's interesting is the woman did hear God correctly, and she responds. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. That's the sin of Eden. The sin of Eden was not simply eating of a tree. The sin of Eden was the desire to be like God. That's why they ate of the tree. And to be like God simply means to be in charge, to be in control, to be the captain of your own destiny, the master of your own fate. And that's what we all want to be. Every sinful action we take, really, is a desire to be in charge. And we're told that when the woman heard that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here's what sin does. The first thing that sin does is that it opens our eyes to see ourselves for what we really are, ultimately. It shows that we're not as wonderful as we once thought we were. And the other thing that sin does is it alienates us. What's the first thing that they did? They went and they hid themselves. Now, up to this point, apparently, they enjoyed an intimate relationship with God. It's described here in this book as walking with God in the cool of the day. And anybody that's ever lived in Charleston can appreciate that imagery. Walking with God in an intimate relationship with God. Walking with him in the cool of the day. But now God comes and looks for them. And what has happened? They are alienated. They are hiding from God. The relationship has been broken. The trust has been broken. And they hid themselves. And they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And the Lord says to him, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now that's a simple question, and it deserves a simple answer. Did you eat of the tree? Now that's a yes or no answer, isn't it? But that's not how the man responds. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see what you have there? You have the blame game. It starts right back there at the beginning. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their own actions. They want to blame somebody else. The woman blames the serpent... And the man blames the woman, but actually, the man was doing even worse than that. He was actually blaming, if you think about it, God. The woman you gave me. Don't look at me. This is not my problem. You gave me her, and she's the issue. Now, we laugh about that, but if you think about it, that is what most of us do. We fail to take responsibility for ourselves. We always want to suggest that there are extenuating circumstances. We always want to say that somebody else is ultimately responsible. Well, go back to James now. And James asks this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes you to gossip? What causes you to suggest innuendo? What causes these things? That's what James wants to know. It's obvious that our tongues are capable of great destructive power. What causes it? What causes these things? Well, what we want to do is exactly what our first parents did. We do not want to take responsibility for ourselves, do we? We want to suggest that somebody else is somehow responsible for the way we are. For some people, it's their parents. My father was absent, my mother was overbearing, and that's the way I am. So it's really their fault. It's an attempt to excuse our behavior. Or we'll suggest that it's our circumstances. If not our circumstances, our environment. Sometimes it's our own physical bodies. I just have these passions, I have these desires. It's the way I am. But when all is said and done, we are as guilty as Adam of really blaming God. But the one thing we do not want to do is take responsibility for ourselves. But James is not about to let us off the hook. James says, if we're ever going to deal with the problems in our lives, we need to understand what the real issue is. There's no use treating the symptoms. You know, you can treat symptoms... But if you do not cure the disease, it will still kill you. And that's what James is concerned with. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The problem for you and for me, the problem with our tongues, is really a problem of the heart. What comes out of our mouth is actually coming from our hearts. And that's the real issue. And that's not just the opinion of James. As I said, James was the Lord's brother. Much of what he is teaching us here is exactly what Jesus taught. Many of the illustrations he uses are illustrations that Jesus would have used. If you don't believe me, just turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 15. This is Jesus. He has been engaged in a debate with the Pharisees. And at one point, some people come to him and they say, you don't understand, the Pharisees are getting a little irritated, you're offending them, probably not a wise thing to do. Matthew chapter 15, and Jesus called the people to him and said to him, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So he's using that same language of the tongue. Then the disciples said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees are offended by what you're saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Not to eat with unwashed hands. Whatever is coming out of your mouth, which is the best indicator of your spiritual health, is actually, Jesus says, coming from your heart. So even if you could sew your lips shut, that would not resolve the problem. Because the problem goes much deeper than that. This is why the prophet Jeremiah describes the heart as being deceitful above all all things. And that is why in our culture today we are doing everything in our power to somehow redefine sin. Because sin is something that forces us to take responsibility for ourselves and that's the last thing that we want to do. And so we'll try to redefine sin. We'll describe it as a mistake. Or we'll describe it as a crime. A crime. But whatever it is, we think of it as something that is external. But what Jesus makes very clear here is that sin, sin is something not external. It's not something that corrupts us from the outside. It's what's inside, and we are what corrupts the world. Look at the way we do this. Look at what the human heart does. Yes, it produces foul talk which is so destructive but it produces a host of other things as well it produces wars what causes quarrels what causes fights among you is not this the problem that your passions are at war with each other you desire and do not have you murder you covet you cannot obtain you fight you quarrel if you think of all the legacies of men What's the greatest legacy of man? What is the one thing that we have passed on from one generation to the next generation? It's war. That's the one thing that we have passed on unfailingly from one generation to the next generation. One of the earliest historical records is the Sumerian bas-relief that dates back to the year 3000 B.C., 3000 BC. And do you know what it depicts? One king going to war against another king. And this has been the way that it has been all through history. Every culture has been affected by conflicts, by wars, by struggles. You think about Greece. Think about Athens. Some of you went to Greece with me a few years ago and we saw Athens and the glory of Athens and all of its accomplishments the first modern democracy, if you will. But you know, the glory of Athens lasted for a very brief period of time, only about 30 or 40 years. And then the Greeks got into a very destructive war with the Spartans, which is called the Peloponnesian War. It would last for 27 years. And at the end of it, Athens would be in the late afternoon of her glory. What about Rome? We think of the magnificence of Rome. If Rome was characterized by anything, it was characterized by war. Almost everyone who was a Roman citizen was expected at one point or another to serve in the army. Rome itself conquered other nations and in the end found itself conquered. From 1618 to 1648, all of Europe, at least what was left of the Holy Roman Empire was convulsed in war. It became known as the Thirty Years' War. Many historians consider it to be the worst struggle that took place until the 20th century. Thirty years of conflict between Protestants and Catholics and various states. It destroyed one-third of the German-speaking population of Europe. 4.5 to 6 million deaths. And remember, the population of Europe was nothing compared to what it is today. You think about the Napoleonic Wars. You think about World War I. World War I, 1914, 1918, 30 million lives lost. And they called World War I the war to end all wars. They believed that there would be one great war. Humanity was on the upswing. Social Darwinism, we're making progress. We're getting better and better. World War I ended in 1918. What was happening in 1938? 20 years later, we're back at it again. Except now there would be 60 million deaths. In 1967, I found this on the Internet, and I found it very interesting. In 1967, U.S. News and World Report was doing a study of how many conflicts, how many battles, how many insurrections had taken place since 1945, the end of World War II. And this is what they said in 1967, 20 years later, there had been 12 limited wars, 39 political assassinations, 74 violent rebellions, 1,162 social revolutions. Now fast forward to 2021. How many other conflicts, wars and destructive insurrections would have to be added to that list? That's man's great legacy, folks. That's what we bequeath one generation to the next. And where did it come from? James says it comes from within. It comes from our hearts. It's from our hearts that all of this destructive talk comes. So, if we need anything at all, James is very clear what we need is something that deals with the problem of our hearts. That's the real issue. The tongue can be a good bellwether, but it's only a bellwether for the real state and condition of your heart. What's the solution? If the problem is not just our tongues, if the tongue is just a symptom, what is the solution? Let me go through it briefly. The first thing that can help us, the first step on the road to a solution is to see ourselves aright. To see ourselves as we really are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. Look at how James describes us here. He describes us as an adulterous generation. What that means is an unfaithful generation. Even as Christians, we have been united to Christ, but how many of us are faithful to him? So we're an adulterous generation. He goes on to say that we are friends with the world. The word that is translated world here is a very interesting word. It is the word cosmos, from which we get cosmology, and it can be used in a number of different ways. It can be used to simply describe the created order. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But more often than not, in the New Testament, the word cosmos is meant not of the created order, not of the ornament of God's creation, but rather it is normally meant to describe the spirit of the age. The Germans have a word for this, zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And that's what James is talking about here. He's saying the problem is that we need to acknowledge is that, number one, we're an adulterous people. We've been unfaithful to God. He's been faithful to us. We've been unfaithful to him. The second thing we need to acknowledge is that we have been friendly with the spirit of this age. And the spirit of the age, he says, has made us, listen to this, enemies of God. Now, be honest. How many of you actually think of yourself as an enemy of God? But that's exactly the way the Bible describes us. That's the way not only James describes us, it's the way the Apostle Paul describes us in Romans chapter 1. It's also the way he describes us in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and like the rest of humanity, children of wrath, under judgment. Why? Because we were in rebellion against God. So the first step on the road... To a healing of the heart, which will result in a pure speech, is to see ourselves for what we really are and to acknowledge that. And the second thing that is necessary is for us to see God aright, to see the God whose property is always to have mercy. The God who has acted on our behalf and loved us in spite of our impurity. This was the message that changed the life of Charles Wesley. Wesley saw God as this this cruel taskmaster, this God who had a checklist that Wesley was expected to keep and he couldn't do it. But one day he understood that God loved him in spite of his sin, in spite of the fact that he was adulterous, in spite of the fact that he was a friend of the world, in spite of the fact that he had been waging war against God, he discovered that God loved him and the God who was the injured party decided to make peace with Wesley by his blood shed on the cross. And when that happened in 1738, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn. And the first stanza captures what is necessary in order for us to have a change of heart. It results in a change of lives. It results in a change of speech. Here's what he wrote. You know the hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns. But the first stanza is what really captures what Wesley understood. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, an adulterous enemy of God? When you realize what you are, and you begin to understand who God is, then something happens to your heart. Your heart will be changed. It will be transformed. That's what the Holy Spirit will do to you. He will change your heart. And if your heart gets changed, your speech will change. What you say and how you say it will be transformed. And that's how you know you're really walking with the Lord. That's how you begin to realize that you are really growing in grace and becoming Christ-like. So how's your tongue today? And more importantly, how's your heart today? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Epistle of James. It's a neglected book, and for obvious reasons. It's because a book that really takes us to task, forces us out of our comfort, forces us to take a good, hard look at ourselves. It holds up a mirror to our face. We cannot hide. There's no place to go. There's no one we can blame when we read through the book of James. He calls us out, but not in the hopes that we might despair, not in the hopes of tearing us down, but in the hopes that we might recognize that there is one to whom we can turn, who can transform our hearts, who can take our hearts of stone, make them into hearts of flesh. And if he can change our hearts, he can change our speech, he can change our tongues, he can change our lives, and by consequence, he can change the world, one soul at a time. So, Lord, we pray that there would be peace on this earth, and we pray, as the old song says, that it would begin with us. So take our hearts, Lord, and transform them, that we might be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.